Welcome to the Ghost Hunting Society and Other Phenomena, Season 1, Episode 3. Hello everybody, this is Damon again, uh, down at 8 Palmal with the Ghost Hunting Society. Tonight we're going to try something a bit different. We've got the whole group with us tonight. I don't think I've seen a podcast like this before. Altogether, there's about 16 of us in the room. Um, we're really excited tonight as well. Not only are we going to try something new, but we're also going to speak to somebody I spoke to in the past, a fascinating character. Um, he's the author of over 20 books on the paranormal, um, and he also investigated a very famous case that I love to talk about, um, which is the South Shields Poltergeist. So would you please welcome to the show, Darren Ritson. How are you, Darren? Hello there, Damon. Yes, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, thank you for having me on tonight. Not a problem at all, mate. It's been it's been a long while since we last spoke to each other, and uh, I think last time was about two years ago, am I right? Yeah, I think it's been a while. It's, um, I, I can't quite remember, to be honest. I think Kim's going over way too quickly these days and doing that many things, that many podcasts that I did, I cannot remember exactly when it was, but it was maybe a year and a half to two years ago, yeah. yeah. I think it was, yeah. And I know you've been very, very, very busy. You've, I mean, we're here to talk about you in general, and I've mentioned, obviously, the South Shields Poltergeist, which we'd love to talk about, but also know that yeah. you've, you've got an, another book that came out not long ago that's been revised, the Contagion uh, book, yes. and we can perhaps talk a bit about that. Um, so just for everybody that's listening and everybody that's with in the studio right now, could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about Darren when he was younger? How did these things kind of start? Where where did it begin? As a child, growing up, um, I lived in a, a normal sort of two up two down bedroom semi detached house um, in the St Anthony's area of Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, and when I was a when I was a child growing up, I, I did experience one or two uh, strange things, shall we say, which I sort of deemed was interesting. But, but being a child, sort of thing, I was kind of frightened as well. Um, and after I'd experienced a couple of things like that, uh, there was a, an incident that I experienced when I was thirteen years old in France, um, and that that really sort of made me stop and think, uh, as if to think, well, there's something definitely weird going on, um, especially the incidents in France where I saw, like, a bedside cabinet uh, rock from side to side and it threw itself across the room. And that was, that, I was 30 years old at that point, um, and that combined with some of the other things that had occurred earlier on in my life made me think to myself, I'm going to start looking into this. And so I started buying books and magazines. Um, one of those books being This House is Haunted by Guy Lyon Playfair, which I found extremely fascinating. Uh, the interesting thing about that is, was for years afterwards, I always used to think, after I'd read that book, it was like such amazing things that went on in the house in Enfield. And I always used to question it. And I used to think, could that be real? Is it made up or... Uh, you know, is it exaggerated? And you know, and if it is real, like wow, you know. Um, and not knowing at that particular point, fast forward thirty years or so, um, that I would have my own particular case uh, in which the author of this house is haunted 
guy Playfair would end up writing the forward to my book. So it's kind of weird how that how that how that worked out. So that was it basically it in a nutshell. Um a couple of the things that had happened was when I was a was a child, really got us got us thinking. Um so if you want an example I can I can give you an example of what sort of what sort of things happened. Um for example, there was there was one night. It was it was a hot summer's night, and I went to bed. Um, and because it was really hot, I decided to sleep in the bush. So I was here. It was a really hot night, you know. So I I, I stripped off and I and I got to bed, and I went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up, um, and I, I thought I saw this figure standing in the doorway of what looked to be like a, a young child who was in silhouette. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this is quite strange, but rather than being more concerned that there might be a youngster in the room, I, I was, like, grossly, I was actually thinking to myself, well, I'm, I'm lying here with next to nothing on, literally nothing on. So I, I'm, I got up through the night, and, and I put my t-shirt and my clothes back on. Um, and when I woke up the following morning, I realised I'd, I'd, I'd all meet my kid back on. And I was thinking that that was a strange dream that I had last night. And, and like I say, when I woke up, I woke up with all my, with my gear back on, but it was inside out and back to front. So I don't know if that technically was a dream or not. It might have been. But however, the interesting thing about that is is my dad, he told me a story about the house that I used to live in. And he said there used to be a boy who lived there and his bedroom was my bedroom. I was occupying his bedroom, if you know what I mean. And unfortunately, um, he was electrocuted on the railway lines, which is out back of the house. So that kind of ties in with this potential figure, which is standing looking at me, possibly thinking, Who are you and what are you doing in my bedroom? sort of thing. So that was that was one of the one of the strange things that occurred. Um, again in the same bedroom, um my bed was tucked away into the corner, um and I was like curled up on my side, fast asleep. Now when I if I was doing my eyes and look, all I would see was like two walls and I I was facing the corner. Because that's my bed was like tucked away in the corner. And I woke up one night and I felt as though there was somebody actually like blowing hard um, under, me, under, me, under me forehead. It was like, a, you know, as if you're, you're going to puff out the candle or something like that, you're going to blow it out. Then I woke up and I could feel this draft on my head and I was nowhere near the window and it was a powerful draft and it was kind of isolated and it was right on the centre of my forehead, and I and I sort of moved and sort of fought it, and I was like, I was rubbing my head, and it, and it kept on coming, which was another sort of strange, strange event. So it was again, it was things like that, which um, really, really got me thinking about the paranormal, and that basically put me on my path. So I was in, I went to France in 1986, it was. And this is an this is an interesting story. Um, it was on well last night. 
and we were still in this big old rambling old like mansion type place and it was had dormitories and it had big dormitories that slept about 25 or 26 people and there was a smaller dormitory uh, which slept about five or six and I was in the small dormitory and when you go away with the school and you go away as kids and you, you stay in, a, in an old spooky building like that you're going to get stories of ghosts and kids frightening each other and, and sure enough that occurred um, but we were told we weren't allowed to take any juice or any food up into the dormitories into the, into the room but one of the lads decided to smuggle in some orange juice and when we were up in the room having a drink of this orange juice it ended up getting spilled all over the floor and we had, we had this huge puddle um, on, on, the, on the wooden floor and rather than tidy it up and mop it up because we were kids we decided we would just hide the stain instead. And what we did was we picked up my massive heavy bedside cabinet, which took two with a move, and we placed it over the orange juice. So this bedside cabinet was in the middle of the floor. So we're not thinking for one minute if the teacher had walked in, he would have said, what's that doing in the middle of the floor? You know, rather than get it out and just dab it up. Um, anyway, the bedside cabinet stayed in the middle of the room for the rest of the day, stroke, evening. So we went to bed in the evening and um, I was woken up through the night by this slow like, knocking sound. Um, it was like a tap a few seconds later and tap, another tap. And a few seconds later and another tap. And I opened my eyes and I thought, what on earth is that? Um, so I turned and I looked around the room and basically I could see my bedside cabinet which was standing in the middle of the floor and it was slowly like coming up onto one edge and it was balancing then it sort of came down onto its onto its feet normally and that was one of the top you know as it as it hit the ground and then it tipped up the other way and then balanced perfectly and then it came down so it was like basically rocking by itself um so feeling a little perplexed and a little bit worried, I, I sprung my legs over the side of the bed because I was in a bottom bunk. And I rubbed my eyes. I could, I could see this thing clear as day um, in, the, in the room. Um, and as I lunged forward to take a closer look and wiped my eyes, it actually took off, flew across the room, all my French francs and the keys and all my little bits and bats that were on the shelf just went strewing all over the place. And um, that terrified me terribly. So I dived up, flipped the light on. By this point, I was crying because I, I was only a kid. Um, everybody else was waking up thinking, what on earth was that? Only, it wasn't them words, what on earth it was like, you know, the language kids use. And it was, what, the, what on earth was that? And basically woke everybody up and for the rest of the night we stayed awake <clears throat> and uh, we, we, we didn't go back to sleep we left the light on and the following morning we packed our bags and we went and that was one of the most frightening things in, 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 in the early days of getting into the paranormal and that, that's when I decided when I got back I started looking at the magazines and the books and I bought the unexplained magazines that used to be out in those days and I got my books and I started reading of Harry Price and Bowley Refrain and all that sort of stuff. And so that, that was more or less it. That's what got me into the 
into the paranormal. But it was years later when um, I eventually started overnighting, shall we say, in, in haunted locations. Um, prior to that, and after <clears throat> the spooky experiences I had as a kid, I put together this questionnaire form. I gathered loads of questionnaires about people who'd seen ghosts and things like that. And eventually I wanted to collate enough information to maybe write a book. Um, and I did eventually, but not based on then questionnaires. It was based on like the overnight investigations that I did. So that, in a nutshell, is how it all began. It, it, it really sounds like as though we, I know we spoke before, but I didn't realise that the, the depth and the, the the diversity of the, of the paranormal experiences that you'd had uh, at a young age. So, we, were you kind of brought up with with the thought that the paranormal was 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 real, that your family supported that view of of things, uh, or, or did you have a time where you had to kind of figure out what your experiencing was actually paranormal? Well, I was kind of brought up. In a sort of environment where my father was believed in that sort of stuff, he, he had a few experiences. He's told us about a number of experiences he's experienced. Um, my mother, not so much. Um, but all, all I can say is, is when, when I experienced these things, um, because I was such a, a young son at the time, I was obviously I was perplexed and I was bemused and I was worried and I was I was frightened, obviously. But I was I was intrigued, and I, I presumed there were paranormal experiences because I couldn't find any sort of explanation as to how how they could have occurred. And, I mean, to this day, I still think about whatever it was that was blown on my forehead. I mean, it's a strange it's a strange incident to occur. Normally, people would say the door slammed closed or things, you know, you know. Or, Things fell off the bookshelf, or the glass was moved, or, or something exploded, like a like a bottle or something. Um, but they have something blow on your forehead. I, I found it was rather strange, and to this day I still think about it. And I, I still, for the life of me, I cannot fathom out what it could have been, because, like I say, the corner of the wall where I was, the, the bedroom was it was. There was no drafts in the room. There wasn't anything like that. The window was. Like set far back from where I was sleeping, it was like me, me, my feet were like under the window, if you know what I mean. So you can imagine how far I was like, my head was further back, and I, I was facing the wall, and I, I just couldn't tell about what it was. Perhaps the, the, the silhouette that I saw in the, in the in the bedroom door could have been a dream. Um, I won't obviously open the rational explanations. I could have been dreaming about something, but I did certainly get up through the night and put my gear back on because when I got out of bed the following morning it was it was like on inside out and back to the front which it, it was a bit like a pet cemetery moment <laughs> you know when when you were, when the guy's got mud all over his feet because yeah. he thought he had a dream and then lo and behold shock horror you realise he, he has been outside and it's the same that's the same kind of thing I guess really where I was like oh that was a strange dream I had and then I got out of bed and I was like oh I must have got up and put my clothes back on. And why did I do that? So I must have been rattled for some reason. But I, I can't really say 100% that was the ghost of the boy that my dad said that he, that he used to live in the house. However, my dad did tell us a story about that same boy 
when we were put to bed, um, as, as youngsters, there's myself and my brother, he had his room, I had my room, and my dad was sitting downstairs watching the, the TV one night, and he heard thump, 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 you know, like across the ceiling. And he thought to himself, the little swines, them. They're up under the bed, they're like running around, you know, they're, you know, like brothers, they in each, each other's rooms, having a bit of fun. And uh, he turned, he come to the bottom of the stairs and he yelled up the stairs, and he went, Will you get the bed, you two? Silence. What a silence. This is what he was telling us. So he crept his way up the stairs and um, he, he sneaked into my room. I was sound asleep. Went into my brother's room. My brother's room. He was sound asleep. He thought, well, that, that's strange because he heard the footsteps running backwards and forwards. Then he walked into his big bedroom and he happened to look out of the bedroom window, which happened to look down at the old railway line because we've got our back garden and then down the embankment is the old railway line. And he actually saw a youngster standing on the railway line just looking up at the house, which is really freaky, to be honest. And he never thought anything of it, believe it or not. He actually just thought to himself, it's a bit strange for a youngster to be playing out at night. And he was just mooching about on the line, looking up at the house. And then it was only a few days later, he told me, that um, he realised that on the night that he heard the footsteps in the room, and the night that he saw the boy on the railway line, um, turned out to be the anniversary of this lad's death, which which was kind of gets my hair standing on end when I, when I talk about that and when I think about that. And many, many years later, I, I, I did approach me, me father and I said, you know, you told us these stories about, you know, the, the boy in the house and, and so, why are you winding me up? Why are you, why are you trying to get us frightened? Uh, you know, like, give us dreams or anything. He went, no, no, son. He went, um, it's a true story. He lived there. He died on the railway line. And then, me and your mother, me and your mother, moved into the into the house. Um, so I guess I, I don't know. It, it's very interesting. It's intriguing. I'm, I'm, I'm I'd lean towards the fact that potentially it could have been paranormal, but like, was it a dream? I don't know. I don't know. So you you'd lived quite a like I say a rich life where the paranormal had kind of popped in and out. Um, you know you had lots of things to kind of validate the paranormal to you, but then yeah. there was a, um, a rather infamous case that you got involved in. How did you get involved in the South Shields poltergeist? Well, that was pure chance, and I still think the lucky stars or whoever it is you thank the Lord above or whoever it is you believe in, the angels, <laughs> whatever. Um, I just thank the universe or whoever it was, they just dropped in my lap. Um, by that point, I'd done a few investigations. I'd been in the papers, the newspapers. I'd put articles in and stuff like that. And I was just getting into the swing of things after I had, you know, deciding that I was really going to like, get stuck into this and, and give it a go, you know. And basically, I'd done a few investigations, and um, word had got round in the office at work that I was into the into the ghosts and things like that. And it turned out to be a a, a colleague of mine at work who was my line manager at the time. Her friend, who also worked at the same place, told her about what was going on in her daughter's house. If you know what I mean, and my line manager got all the information one day when she was out having a lunch and she came back to me and she said, um, my friend's daughter has got a ghost. And that was that was in ooh, June 2006, I do believe. Um, 
And I said, like, right, that's that's interesting. What's been going on? And she told us a little bit, and then I basically said, well, can I email your friend and ask her about it? She said yes. So I emailed this lady in question, who was the mother of Marianne, who, who features in the book, and I, I started getting information from her. And it just went from there, basically, for a for a month or so. I ended up keeping in touch with the family and Marianne herself. Um, I'd phone her up and she'd phone me up and she'd say, this has happened and that's happened. And so I told her to keep an, uh, an event daily, basically. I said, you, you know, write down what's happening, when it's happening, what times, who's who's there, etc. And then it'll give her an idea of like maybe what's going on and just make a note of all the, all the strange things that, that's been going on. Which also sort of wrote up what had been going on the past few months prior to that because... It actually started in the December of 2005, whereas our involvement wasn't until the June of 2006. So by that point, we were actually thinking, or I was actually thinking at the time, if it is a poltergeist, which it sounds like it is, um, the likelihood is that it's it's going to peter out or it's, 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 it's going to fade away because it's been going on for a good few months now and we normally don't last that long. Um, but it didn't. It it just kept on going. She kept on reporting things. She kept on phoning us up, and she was getting frightened. And it got to the point where this this young girl, um, I said, "Look, will you please come round? Will you please come round and have a look? Because it's 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 not getting it's not Peter enough. It it seems to be actually getting worse." So I was like, "Yes, okay, then we'll we'll come round and we'll we'll have a look and." It, it all sounded too good to be true, if I've got to be honest. So just, and that's when I contacted Mike Halliwell. Can I just colleague. ask you, what kind of, of activity were being re- reported to you at the beginning, though? What kind of things were they, they, were, they were saying was happening? Well, at first, there was, there was just minor things going on. It was like uh, like something being left somewhere that shouldn't have been there. And Marianne had said to Mark, um, did, you leave, did you leave that there? And he was, he was like, no, I never left it there. And, Oh, you, it must have been me, you know, it must have been, it must have been you. And then they forgot about it, and then something else happened. Did you leave the shower on? No, I didn't leave the shower on, it must have been you. Or did you leave the front door open? Things like that, all these things were occurring. The shower was left on, the front door was open, when, you know, when they knew they locked it. Um, things were just being found out of place, things like that. Um, there was like noises being heard, thumps and bangs. They thought there was somebody in the house one day, and they were terrified, they went upstairs to have a look nobody about and these were the sort of things that was that was occurring eventually it started kind of escalating getting a bit more harrowing shall we say um, to the point where the, the, the young lad of the house had this rocking horse it was a little toy rocky horse and he used to sit and play on it and it, it, it used to get moved around the house um, it was left in his bedroom once and then they found it at the top of the stairs and then they found it downstairs and and the final score was when they found it, it was like hanging by its reins from the loft hatch, which was absolutely terrifying for them. And so he actually, um, Mark, uh, the, the, the man of the house, he actually put it outside and, and locked it outside. But the following morning, <laughs> when they come downstairs, it was it was back in the house. It's, it is like something out of a horror movie, to be honest. Um, and it, it got to the point that we're just like at our wit's end and they just needed somebody to come in. Before we went in, they did have um, a, a, a sort of a priest in or a vicar in, 
Now, they weren't actually religious. People, they weren't religious at all, and they weren't into the paranormal. But I think they, they, they went with the priest because they must have heard of that sort of thing. You get a priest come in, and I think there's some sort of evil entity or some sort of spirit in the house, so they wanted to have the house blessed. So they had a blessing, and as per usual in these cases, it, it kind of looked, there was a lull for a while, but then it came back. And then they had these spiritualist people in, and these psychics came in, and not being disrespectful to mediums or psychics, but on this particular occasion, by the time the psychics all left the house, there was more ghosts in the house than there was when they, when they first went in. They said, oh, there's a guy on the stairs. You've got you've got somebody upstairs in, in, in the, on the landing. There's somebody in the living room. There's, oh, you've got two people. That was like Grand Central Station for like the spirit work. Um, and they basically left. And she was actually more concerned after that visit because the, the, they actually did very little to sort of the lay of and by basically saying, look, you've got ghosts all over the place. Um, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, they'll go on their own time, goodbye, and off they went. Um, so that's when they, they ended up finding out about myself. And that's when I got in touch. And after a while, it was like, look, will you come in and at least have a look? And I basically said to her from the start, I said, look, it sounds like a poltergeist, but we'll have to come in and have a little, you know, we'll come in, we'll get to know you, we'll have a bit of a chat, we'll see if we can experience anything for ourselves. But if, if, inverted commas, um, you're telling the truth here and you're not being misled or mistaken or even fooled by somebody in the household, if this is all true, then it, 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 it sounds like you have got a live poltergeist case. On, on your hands there. But it all sounds too good to be true. Um, but they were famous last words on our part because on the day we went in for the first time, um, after a few hours of being in the house and getting to know them, we sort of formed a, a rapport and a bit of a bond with them and got to know them and, you know, did the, the usual sort of pre-investigation interviews with the family, finding out all about their background and their history and that. Um, it was in the afternoon where we got threats to it was like a maelstrom of just weird activity and things being thrown around and pushed around and, you know, we were jumping around all over the place, you know, with, in freight and myself and Nate, we were, we were ecstatic with joy. <laughs> Whereas these two were like shaking in the corner beside, beside themselves in fear, you know, and we had to apologise and we said, look, we were really sorry about this, but from our perspective, you, you've got to understand that if we if we're seeing something, if we're seeing stuff flying around and things are being moved around in our presence, and we know that it's not any of us doing it, because everybody had eyes on everybody else, watching each other like hawks. Um, we then thought to ourselves, well, that's great for our, from our perspective. So at least we know there's something going on, and at least we can now begin to think about gathering information, gathering data, perhaps working out what it is to see if see if we can help you in some way. But I was always convinced after that first day, like the suspicions were like sort of right. I thought it was a poltergeist. On the day, it was poltergeist activity that were experienced. And I was still determined that eventually this thing will burn itself out and it will go. Um, all we can do in the meanwhile is come and visit you. You've got my telephone numbers. 
You can ring him up any at any time. We'll come along. If you get frightened, we'll, we'll you know we'll come and sit with you, but we'll sit it out with you until the thing decides to go. And I was adamant because it had been five or six months until that point that it was going to go at any time soon. But it didn't. It, it went on for yet another five months. And that was probably the most frightening, stroke exciting, stroke bewildering, nerve-wracking, wonderful time I've ever had in, <laughs> in relation to paranormal happenings. So... That's basically, in a nutshell, how, how it began. And it just went from there. We just kept in touch with the family. We phoned up. We went across. Um, sometimes Meg got called out in the middle of the night. I lived on the other side of the water at the time. Um, Meg lived on this side of the water, if you know what I mean, this, this side where the house was. So Meg, it was easier for Meg to get called out of bed and get and go down, which, which he did a few times. And it just went on and on and on and on. And eventually I just thought to myself, like, hands, you know, head in my hands, elbows on the table, and I'm shaking my head thinking, you know, it got to a point where I was like, well, when is this thing going to end? And what on earth is this thing? After it started demonstrating some horrendous, horrible feats of cruelty um, when it began to attack members of the household and things like that. Um, in some respects, it was it was a horrible, horrible time. Certainly was for the family, and it was quite a frightening time for all concerned. Because I've got to put my hands up and say I had never seen or dealt with anything like that in my life, and I never have. Afterwards, we've had other poltergeist cases, but they haven't been as really as bad as this one. Um, but it, it was so bewildering. And like fifteen, sixteen years on, I still pinch myself, and I think. Did that, did that happen? Did that, did that really happen? And I think, yeah, yes, it did. Um, and I, I can kind of guess I was so fortunate enough to, to witness activity like that. And we did what we said we were going to do. We supported the family. We stayed with them until the end. Um, and then eventually we, sent, we went by separate ways. They wanted to move on and forget about the whole sorry situation. Um, and, that, and that's basically it. It was an absolutely fascinating, frightening uh, case. And it, there was an awful lot of things that, that went on, and, and like I say, it was very diverse. Is, is there one or two incidents that you particularly had that have, have stayed with you, that you, you kind of you go back to and, and revisit? Can you tell us if you were them? Yeah, <laughs> literally, the whole case, <laughs> everything I saw. Um, I, I mean, there's, there's, I'll, I'll go through a number of incidences if you like um, but they're all to this day scratch your head you know you, you've got that funny look and you need this guy wow wow I can't believe that sometimes I'll sit and I'll sift through the book sometimes I'll read the book from cover to cover and I, there's, there's things in there which I think oh I forgot about that and I, sometimes I read the, I'm my own book and I'm, my hair stand up on it like, oh I forgot about that oh that was awful yeah, there was times when we were all sitting around the table once, and this was one of the mornings where um, the, the text messages started coming through. Um, and then it started on the, the landline at first, and the landline was, it was it had been sort of rigged, so you could only ring out. No, sorry, you could only ring. It was incoming calls only. Um, <clears throat> and it was one of those old state telephones, you know, with, with, the, with the handles on, and you've, you've got the keypad on, and 
you know, the one you fit in the cradle. Um, but it wasn't like a mobile phone as such, um, like like what they are nowadays. Uh, anyway, it, it, it sort of rang. It, it beeped when we were sitting there, and, and like, you have a message. Um, when you know you did the one four seven one sort of message thing, it, it, it was this, uh, this electronic voice sort of. It used to relay your messages. It was it was part of the telephone and its its mechanism. But if someone had left a message and said, you know, right, hello, um, I'll meet you at three o'clock, and you'd get this robotic voice saying, you know, hello, meet you at three o'clock, you know, and it would relay the message. Um, but this this message said, hi, you know, and it was like, well, that's strange, you know. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm seeing such a long blue team at that. I'm wondering if it was if it was, if the phone was set. It was set. It was a one way or the other way. I'll have to consult the book to find out. Um, but anyway, the, the message comes through and it said hi, and she got a bit rattled and she went, "Oh, it just sent the message." And a few minutes later, it sent another one and it said, "Hi, hi, 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 hi." Like a number of highs, which was which was kind of weird. Um, <coughs> she kind of like stood up and. Shouted and apologized. She went, Stop it, stop it. Um, if you're playing jokes with us, just pack it in. She went, you, You've went too far. You know, she's trying to communicate with whatever it was. And, and then the phone went again and it had, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it's, and it was as if whatever it was was responding to her sort of shouting out, if you know what I mean. And then it went from the, the normal telephone to the mobile telephones, they started getting text messages on there. Messages were coming through. Messages were coming through on the day we were there and we decided to like everybody's mobile phones went into the middle onto the table. And um yet another message came through. So we thought it could have been somebody playing a trick, you know, like getting having a message sent, could have been him sending her a message. But his phone was on the table at the time. So we thought, well, he couldn't have been sending our message because we're sitting watching his phone at the moment. So we decided to, to take it one step further and um, we dismantled the phone and we took the SIM card out. As we looked at we looked at Marianne's phone and we realised it was coming from Mark's telephone. That's why we got him to put his phone in the middle. So we, we dismantled his phone. We took his SIM card out and his battery in the wall sitting there on the table. And yet again, and Marianne got another text and it came from the dismantled phone that was, that was sitting on the table. And that was crazy. That was pretty harrowing. And there was other occasions when Marianne was out and about and it was sending her text messages. There was one day that they'd had enough of the activity in the house and they decided to flee for the night and go and get some respite at her mother's. And she just happened to phone Mike up and she went, look, if you try to get us on the home phone, I'm not going to be there. You'll have to get us on the mobile. We're fleeing the house tonight because um, we're petrified. Um, Please tell us it's not going to follow her. Now, because Mike was on the phone at the time, in Mike's words, it put him on the horns of the dilemma. He thought to himself, right, should I say no, right, if it's not going to follow you, to ease her mind and tell a little way to lie, you know, to, to perhaps, you know, appease her, sort of thing, to make her feel better, or should he tell the, the honest truth and say, yes, he could potentially come with you, if you know, the focus person is going with you, 
but at this point we didn't know who the focus person was. But this thought occurred in, the, in a split second, what should he do? But then the poltergeist sort of took it out of his hands by then sending her a text message almost immediately after she'd said, it's not going to follow us, is it? And the text message read something in the lines of, you know, I will follow you to your mum's bitch, you know? And, wow. And, and, and there was this, so, like, was this spontaneous? So as soon as the, the question was asked, this message came through? Yeah, almost immediately. I mean, I, I don't know who could have texted a message that quick, but it, it came through immediately after she'd said that. And then she went, oh, my God, it's, 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 it's following us, mate. Mate, it's going to kill us. I hope it, please tell us it's not going to kill us. It's seconds later again. Another message comes through. I will follow. Was it? I will follow you to your mum's. Um, tonight's the night you will die, bitch. And I'm, I'm. See, I talk about this at times. Like I'm talking about it now, and I'm, I'm getting that lump in my throat, and the hairs are standing up on my arms, and it. And she was absolutely terrified. And now, mate had phoned me and told me about it, and I said, mate, it's ramp. It's trying to ramp up the fear. I'm sure it's trying to ramp up the fear. She will be fine. And I went, throwing her back and tell her that she's going to be absolutely fine. And it's it's not going to do any harm to her. And she's going to wake up tomorrow morning and everything's going to be fine. And it's just trying to, like, put the wind up her, which it did, and it worked. Uh, but the following day, she woke up, she was fine. And she got back in touch with the next day. And she was like, yeah, yeah, you were right, you were right. And we were saying, you see, you see, this is what we're trying to tell you. If you can become an investigator and get excited about the stuff that's going on in your house, it sort of alleviates any stress, worry, fear that you've got. Because at that point, we were thinking, you know, poltergeists feed off fear. They seemingly feed off fear. I mean, there had been a world sort of idea and theory that the more frightened people get, the more intense the phenomena becomes. Is it, it is feeding off their emotions in some way. Um, and even Morris Gross from the Enfield Apologies case, he said the same thing many years ago. In fact, that's where I probably got the idea from. You know, you learn from people over the years and you learn from your reading books. And I saw this interview with Morris Gross and he said the same thing. And he said, if, if don't become frightened, become excited instead. And he says, as soon as you become excited and you become happy and you want things to happen, your, your sort of fear sort of depletes which, in theory, if the theory is correct, it kind of starves the poltergeist, whatever it is, of its energy source, and it, and it kind of or doesn't do anything. But this is when it can get complicated because then it, people say then it can draw its energy from other places, um, or it can frighten other people. And this is where the contagion aspect comes in, which is which is, which is fascinating in itself. Yeah, I so think we've got the text messages. So yeah. I was just going to say, I can remember last time we spoke, I think I, I mentioned during the conversation, do you think that, that kind of when a spirit leaves somewhere, where does it go? And you said, well, that's, that's kind of this idea of this, of this, this contagion. Can you just touch on some of that? I know this is your new book, uh, which has been uh, revised with additional information. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because the contagion idea is really, really fascinating. Right, well... I have to be honest, well, I've, I've said in the first few pages of my book anyway, um, and so I'll just open up the book here, I've got a copy next to us, um, and I shall point out that there are a couple of other investigators that have noted this, 
Um, I am not the first person to bring this to the fore. The contagion idea um, is not my baby, shall we say. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish I was the first person to ever have documented and said, hey, there's something dodgy going on. But there is other people that have made mention of it before. But what surprises me was the fact that a, a number of people have made mention of it. And, but it, it's as if it was only in passing. No one has ever decided to like look into the contagion aspect, collate cases, and try to build like a dossier of evidence to support the fact that, well, it happened in this case, it happened in that case, it happened in this case. And that's what I've done in the new book. There's a chapter called Historic Contagion, where I've listed a whole load of, it's probably one of the biggest chapters in the book. There's, there's a whole load of cases that we, uh, I discuss the case and I, you know, basically discuss it, and then then I talk about um, the contagion aspect of that case. Basically, what I'm trying to do in this new volume is try to demonstrate the fact that the contagion aspect of the poltergeist, although it has been noted in the past, it, it does occur. Um, let's say, for example, we've got um, the quote here: "If one shared the belief of Miss Stewart, Virginia Campbell's teacher, that the poltergeist is an obscure ailment." then one might almost think that it is contagious. And that was said by William William J. Rowan, the famous American parapsychologist. Um, Morris Gross said the same thing. I took a quote from his from the, the, one of his <clears throat> saints. And he's, he just keeps it short and sweet. And he says, are polygeists contagious, like diseases? And that's come from Morris Gross, like throughout the Enfield polygeist. Um, John and Anne Spencer, they wrote a book in 1995 or 1996 called The Poltergeist Phenomenon. They did a case um, in Hertfordshire um, where they did a number of cases um, and basically they came to a conclusion and they said, where responsiveness needs and contagion takes over is not always clear, but evidence shows that poltergeists do have an element of contagion attached to them. Those involved find they take a little home with them after working in poltergeist-infested houses. And I think that's fascinating. And I'm actually, I was looking and I'm thinking, you know, nobody's ever done a, a full-on study on contagion itself. Actually, nobody, to my knowledge at that time, as it transpires, I have found out an individual in the States who spent the last 20 years or so um, looking at ghostly phenomena in contagion. Yes, means poltergeist. I'm looking at the poltergeist phenomena. This guy was looking at like holdings, as, as in like um, you know, like old spooky houses where there's like apparitions seen. And it isn't poltergeist. It isn't a poltergeist case. He's looking at like haunted sort of houses, if you know what I mean, um, where spirits allegedly attach themselves to you and, and, and come away with you. And he's looking into into that, whereas I was looking into the into the poltergeist um, sort of phenomenon. Um, and basically what contagion is, uh, in a nutshell, is, how do, you, how do you put this? Does it follow you home? Does it attach itself to you? These, these sort of um, phrases are now becoming cliche and they're becoming, they're coming a little bit cheesy, um, if, you, if you know what I mean. Oh, I got followed home by this and I got followed home by that. And everybody then is going to claim that they've been followed home in it and, Eventually, the, the good cases may get thrown out, like the baby may get thrown out with a bathwater in relation to them. Um, but in, in a nutshell, somehow, whilst a visitor or an investigator goes into a, 
a poltergeist infested house. We 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 were termed we termed ground zero in in the in the book. When a visitor goes to ground zero, it's as if a poltergeist can like reach out and touch all that sort of all those that come close to it in close proximity. Now, in my eyes, in my opinion, it can only be classed as contagion if someone who isn't related to the family in the house or the poltergeist bogus experiences the phenomena that we in their home, if you know what I mean. So say, for example, if South Shields, we identified Mark as the focus. So if Mark went to work one day, and poltergeist activity started going off in his workplace, which it actually did, um, we wouldn't deem that as contagion because Mark was and is the focus. You know what I mean? So it didn't follow him. It's, it, it, if it's true what they say about the poltergeist being within the person and the person projecting all this RSPK, if there's any truth in that theme, then the idea is he's took it with him anyway. So it hasn't followed him. Now it becomes a little bit more different and a little bit more interesting if, for example, we went to the house and then we left the house we were thinking that we've left the poltergeist with the family and the focus. And then later in the day, we experienced poltergeist activity. Somehow it sort of spread out to us and infected us to a certain extent. And it's displaying paranormal activity in another location. Which I have to say, it did. There was an occasion where Meg and I came home um, we went to Mike's office at his house, and there's, there's quite a famous incident now, which which I've talked about a lot, where we were discussing the the family's house, where they lived, and what was potentially on the land, doing all sorts of research, trying to find out, you know, looking in all aspects. And even though we were sort of convinced there was a poltergeist, we thought, well, let's look into the history of the place anyway. Let's rule out certain things. Let's see what's what. So we're having this conversation about what was on the house beforehand, what was on the land, what was the house built upon. You know, we decided they like down tools and we walked through into the kitchen to make a cup of tea. And as we walked out of Mike's office, past his bookshelf, this huge book, I mean, it must, it must have weighed about four or five pound, big, heavy hardback. It's called The Borough of South Shields uh, by George B. Hodgson. And it's a huge, huge, heavy hardback. And that threw itself off the bookshelf, and it landed on the floor behind us. And we turned round and looked, and we both, we both jumped we had, with, with a bit of a start, you know, what the heck, what on earth was that? And there's his boot on the floor. And again, it's as if, here, we were somehow infected to a small degree. B, whatever it was, was listening in on my conversation, because we were talking about what was on the house, what was on the land, the history of that area. And lo and behold, the book that landed on the floor was a book about the history of South Shields. It was just to say, here's the book, have a look in there, which was, which was, you know, was absolutely fascinating. And that's one, one of many incidences of contagion that actually occurred with us. And it was about this time, um, after we'd sort of read the, the, the South Shields Polygates book, and I was thinking this, this you know, there's a couple of the lads went home and they experienced stuff and we, we came off and we experienced stuff yeah there and 
It's as if the poltergeist was like, you know, stretching out its tentacles and, and reaching out to other people who were involved with the case. Um, and that's when I said to Mike, I look, we should, we, I've heard about contagion before. It's clearly been happening on our case. We should look into this. And that's basically what we did. So basically the contagion is the poltergeist infecting other people that can, that come close or becoming, you know, close to ground zero. But it's got to be people that aren't involved. Take family, friends, not the focused person, not the people in the, not the people in the, in the, the primary infected location. And it's, it's a scary thought. But what we found as well is, is that as, as, so you throw a stone in a, in a, in a pond, and you're going to get ripples. And as the ripples spread out further, they become more weaker, if you know what I mean. The ripples are only bigger where the stone lands. Does that make sense? So the further the contagion spreads out, the kind of weaker, the diluted it becomes. And it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of aspect of the politics, which not many people had actually looked into at that point. So when I started updating this new book, I decided I'm going to scour the books, I'm going to scour the journals, and I'm going to read about as many poltergeist cases as I can, and I'm going to see if anybody's noticed or any, made any mention of, you know, poltergeists following someone away. And if the poltergeist followed somebody away that wasn't living at ground zero, then I thought, now that's interesting, and I made the note of that, and then I've wrote it up and I've put it in the book, and I've found a good few cases. So if you want to read about contagion and all the other cases that I've documented, then you're going to have to buy the book, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I know we've already spoken and I, I am buying the book. Uh, I think everybody else should do the same thing as well. Um, I wanted to now, just if we can, uh, go out to a couple of the guys who are in the room that have, have uh, raised the hand, would like to ask a few questions. So I'm going to hand you over yeah, first of yeah, all yeah. to uh, Nick. Nick's fascinated, by the way, and... Uh, Poltergeist activity, so he's been waiting for this one. Uh, Nick, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself and have a quick chat? Yeah, hi Darren, it's uh, Nick here. Um, one question, you? one question I wanted to ask is, um, yeah, like myself, I have investigated Theatre East Drive. Now, <laughs> is there any point in that? Was what I'm asking. If there's been a poltergeist activity and it's it's depleted and it's gone, do you think the premises could still be? Haunted? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And I think everybody's going to have a different answer to that. Personally, see, I can't say yes and I can't say no because I don't know. I've never been to East Drive. I've never investigated it. There's loads of people saying they've had activity there nowadays. Now, in my understanding of a poltergeist, is it comes, it wreaks havoc, two to three weeks, Four, four to six weeks tops in most cases. In extreme cases, you know, because you always get the exception to the rule, like South Shields, Enfield, things like that, it goes on for a lot longer. Now, when they go, in my opinion, when, when the polygeists go, that's it, they're done. If there's any truth in the fact that there's a focused person, and the focused person is angst or is sort of under stress and they're producing this RSP here. When they deal with the situation and when this, the situation becomes better or when they grow up and they grow out of it, the polygeist normally leaves with it. And then, in my opinion, the polygeist never comes back. So I, I don't know what on earth is going on down in 
30 East Drive, but I'm, I'm inclined to think, um, I don't know what I'm inclined to think. Maybe I should keep this opinion to myself for... <laughs> Can I just put in? Uh, I think you're on the same. Yeah. I think you're on the same wavelength as me, uh, because I got absolutely nothing there when I investigated it. Um, yeah, well, there is, there is lots of information online, and there's lots of people's comments on Facebook to Bean, and there's, there's comments such as the lady next door knocks on the wall and she has a laugh with it, with, with the, the investigators. You know, um, in, in in my opinion. The poltergeist that occurred there in the 1960s, which was investigated after it had finished uh, by Colin Wilson, who was a renowned uh, researcher, investigator. He he was very well famous back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s. Um, He went and investigated the case. Um, And there was a good case that occurred there. Now, there's another colleague of mine, actually, called um, John Fraser, who's a council member on the Society for Psychical Research. He went down, and he wrote a book about poltergeists, and he did research in the whole area, looking for this elusive monk that's supposed to have thrown somebody down the well, or whatever the story is. And there's, there's, there's no records anywhere of any monks being in the area um, I think the nearest monitor was X amount of miles away. So it kind of doesn't really hold water. So this, this monk somehow has become the, the, the main figure of, of, of the whole, even it, it did in those days. Um, but perhaps, perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps a figure was seen which was mistaken to be a monk. Um, it could have just been a, somebody with you know, a little bit cruel on of, of some sorts, but it's just been interpreted as a monk. And then the, the monk theory, the monk ghost has, has kind of stuck. But as, as for activity still happening 50 years after the main event, I am very, very sceptical and, and, and doubtful about that. I may be wrong. I have, to, <laughs> I have to add that I may be wrong. But I've never been, I've never investigated the place. But I think it's highly unlikely that um, a poltergeist is going to be in residence for 50, 50 years. I think that's just mad. But when, when you also consider like, the owner of the house has is, is made a film about it, it stands to read. And then he's opened, it, he's, you know, he's opened the place up for like, guests and investigators. And a lot of guests and investigators these days um, are all too happy to presume there's an entity present when the red light on the K2 meter goes up. Um, and I don't, that's strictly speaking, I don't think that's the case. But I think there could be a lot of misinterpretation, a lot of, a lot of expectation, a lot of nervousness. About. But in, in answer to your question, um, yeah, I think I, I would agree with you and say that it's potentially a lot more hyped up than what it actually is. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. So, can, can I just ask you then, um, Darren, in your in your view, is it a person 
that has the attachment of a poltergeist rather than a location. And once that 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 focus um, of the poltergeist being on one person, um, which you've described as contagion, where it can infect other people almost and sprout off from it like octopus legs, and it still stays with that central person, but it can almost infect other people with a similar kind of activity. If that's yeah. that, if the focus person then stops having the experiences, so does everybody else, and it's almost like kind of it's quelled. That's it. The poltergeist gone. Is that how you really yeah. see it? Yeah, yeah, basically. That's what's that's what essentially happens once the poltergeist focus. I mean, again, this this isn't even proven yet. This has become generally recognised as as what a poltergeist is. But scientifically speaking, there still isn't any proof that RSPK is real. And so the debate still goes on as to. Isn't the focused person creating some sort of, um, you know, psychic power without them realizing it, like a psychic temper tantrum? Or is it indeed some sort of entity of some sort, a thought form perhaps even, that's, that's sort of been created from within the focused person? There's a theory that this thinking form within a person uh, externalizes itself as RSPK, and then when it gets to a certain sort of point in its life cycle, it can actually break off from the person and become an independent sort of thing. Well, um, talk, we, talking to somebody, somebody like yourself, you you were right in the middle of of quite a large case. When you were there, did it feel like this had some kind of consciousness? Did, did it feel like it was somebody was was projecting this? And we spoke to a, a Father Jason Bray last week. Um, he was an Anglican priest. He he was saying that the, the Anglican Church see poltergeist as a, a way that we can send kind of energy, whether it's ne- normally a negative energy, out to items and can affect them. So it's a human-generated thing. That's how he personally sees poltergeist. Do you, do you think there was a conscience that, that was there, something that you were kind of playing a cat-and-mouse game with? Or did you get a feeling that it was the person that was generating the activity but didn't realise they were doing it? Ah, well, you see, that, that's, that's another fascinating question. And I do actually go into that a lot. Well, Meg and I did, because the book that I've updated was the book that both Meg and I wrote. And I've, I've just tweeted and added to it. Well, that's, we're good. We'll look into all that sort of stuff. At first, it, it comes across as, as if there was a focused person. We were trying to narrow out who the focus was and if they were suffering from stress and then maybe trying to help them by relieving that stress and seeing if the poltergeist activity would stop. But after a while, it came across as if it was calculated, it was cunning, it seemed to time its activity like beautifully just to get the the maximum effect from you know the people living in the house. There was there was a number of times where it said it, it announced its departure, and after a few days, you know the family were like, "Oh, thank the Lord." It's over, and you could you could see blood rushing back into that face, and they were breathing a sigh of relief. And it was just when they were lulled into a, a total false sense of security, boom, it came back, and it did something horrifying, and it sent up fear levels like literally through the roof. And I mean, these things, <laughs> whatever they are, that evil. They are absolutely evil. They are swains. I mean, obviously, I can't swear on this 
on this podcast, but they're, oh. they're absolutely... No, you're, you're, you're okay if you want to swear on this one, I'll be honest with you. We've had it before <laughs> and we'll get it again, mate. Don't worry about that. Well, in, 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 in a word, they can be bastards. That's quite mild, and, actually. Uh, <laughs> what we've had in, that's quite mild to what we've had in the past. Don't worry about that. <laughs> well, it's not going to get any worse than that. Um, but honestly, they can be, so we're talking with the idea of what on earth is it? But they, they look back at some of the, the authors who wrote about poltergeists like D. Scott Rogo and William Moore. They've come up with ideas by saying, like, well, people are arguing about is it this? Is it RSPK? Is it coming from a person? Is it a demon? Is it this? Is it that? And we've actually stopped and thought, well, just what if there's two types of poltergeists? What if some types of cases are RSPK and they're all coming from within a, an individual? And what if other types are entities of some sort, either spirits, angry spirits, or whatever, which is an interesting thought, but we'll talk about that in the book as well. Um, but basically, I, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but when it comes to the end of the book, I'm still left scratching my head. And it's like, it could be this, could be that, could be the other. Could be something we haven't even thought about yet. Um, but sometimes, I mean, they, they, they can lead you down this pathway. And they, 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 like to, they like to play with you. They like to toy with you. Um, they want to sell seals masqueraded as an imaginary childhood friend at, at one point. And well, like, it makes it makes sort of head it did. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not too convinced. Because I'd heard a poltergeist in the past that's come with accompanying aberrations. Now, Alan Gold and Tony Cornell, who wrote the 1979 book on polygates, they, they termed them type of polygates, I think, intermediate, intermediate polygates, which means there's a fine line drawn between polygates activity and haunting activity. As you get haunt cases, and you've got polygates cases, and sometimes there's, there's a very fine line in between them two cases, and it's careful to misinterpret what's going on where usually you'd think that you've got a poltergeist, it's just things being thrown around, things being smashed, doors slamming, until the point where people started seeing aberrations. So these cases where there's like the poltergeist activity and there's aberrations accompanying got coined like the intermediate cases. And again, that's what happened at South Shields. There was aberrations seen there. Mike was going to the idea that the little chap who was playing in the young in, in, in the lad's bedroom, um, the son called him Sammy, and he was his he was his playmate. Mate was oh, he's got imaginary childhood, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I think it's just there's one phenomenon happening. Yeah, it's a poltergeist, and it's masquerading, and it's just playing. So in some respects, yes, it's it seemed to have a conscience, not a conscience, a consciousness. Uh, the last thing a poltergeist has got is a bloody conscience. Um, I've, I've, I've got to say it. But it seemed to have a consciousness and it seemed to be calculating and cool and calm and collected. It was vindictive and it seemed to follow people. So it does give you the impression that when you, when you read the, the Poltergeist Parallels and Contagion book or the Contagion book or even the, the Socialist Poltergeist, you can understand why readers come to the conclusion that we thought it was some sort of entity because um, that's the way it came across. You know? But there's other cases we've, we've, we've had which it, it doesn't come across that way. So maybe there aren't, maybe there aren't, 
maybe the Doris PK, maybe there isn't, maybe there's someone answer to it. One thing for certain that we do know, which is, again, so hard to prove, but there's so many cases, the one thing we can't say with 100% certainty is that these things are real and they do happen. So when you get these skeptics mocking and ridiculing and laughing, ah, yeah, oh, yeah, telling ghost stories for kids, man, Halloween type stuff, it's like, no, no. <laughs> well, there were some serious skeptics over the years, and I would just love it if a poltergeist decided to pick on one of them. You know, one of these toffee-nosed skeptics who said, no, you saw this, you, you were mistaken. You know, you were in that house for nearly 12 months, and everything you saw, you misinterpreted it. Um, you've been fed a lie, you've been taken in, you're a fool, you're an idiot, because there's no such thing. And that boils me. It gets me livid, to be honest. Uh, what we've said in, in the past, well, it would be nice if a politician went and picked on one of them and then they could see how it feels. Because I can, I can imagine... Real. I can imagine it's frustrating, especially when you've been there in the middle of something and then all the people are, are, are you know, are kind of trying to, to yeah, question yeah. whether you, you yeah, tell yeah, the, the truth. The, the, the first few years after the book came out, and it, it nearly put me in a, in a loony bin. You know, you, you could have dragged me away in a straitjacket but when I was to read all these comments and... I mean, there were some nasty, nasty comments there. We've got some serious aggravation off these people. And they would not listen to our side of the story. And we went round in circles for years and years. And it got to the point where I thought, I'm going to have to walk away. Otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack up here. And I felt so frustrated because, like, really, I went to help this family. This family called out for help. And I, I'm telling you what I saw. I, you know, I was there. I saw this stuff. We were... You know, we've got some great footage, we've got some, you know, photographic evidence, we've got countless witness testimony, and it's like, I'm, and I know I'm not lying, I'm not lying. And I know on and, and a lot of these occasions when I was in the house, I know 100% that I was not mistaken, I saw what I saw, like things dropping from the ceiling, you know, things, coins, coins being rained down, from nowhere, when there was only a few in the room, bang, clatter, you know, there's a coin, clatter, there's another coin, bang, clatter, clatter, there's, there's some more coins. How do you explain that? No. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it drove us mad when, when... so I'm, I'm past the point of converting skeptics. If you didn't want to believe, just go and do one, that's fine. You've got your opinion, and I know the truth. Off you go. That's that's the way it is now. I think, unfortunately, uh, I mean, anybody that's involved in the paranormal knows that there's always people out there. It seems to be their full time job is trying to, to to pull you to pieces. I do a, a column uh, for for local paper, a weekly column called Supernatural Staffordshire. Every week, same people put comments on and they rip me to pieces. But you'll always find yeah. that. We've got a couple more questions for you as well, Darren. Just just uh, give us a minute. We've got uh, Faye who's just going to come in to have a quick chat with you now, mate. No Hi, Darren. Hello. Um, now you've convinced me that poltergeists are real. <laughs> <I've>, uh, <laughs> that, that wasn't the intention. I've just said I'm not. Well, yeah, you've certainly but, convinced you know, me. Excellent, um, excellent. A little general question: as a female, yeah. and half of the room here are females. I've just got a question for you that I've read and I've been looking at. Poltergeists mm-hmm. tend to prefer women to men, apparently. 
And a person-focused poltergeist tends to, but not always, involve a female adolescent who they think is suffering from emotional turmoil when the activity begins. What's your perception on that one? Well, what you've just stated there is true common belief. Um, In some cases, seemingly that proves to be the case. Seemingly. There's there's obviously the whole host of cases which have been documented since time immemorial. Um, It's only when you get a whole load of cases and you start putting all the cases together and looking for parallels within the cases, you, you, you find these things out. And in a lot of the cases, like you said, most but not all, are centered around a female. And they're young, and they're at that sort of age where they're developing, and it's like they're like prepubescent, and they're going through some sort of angst or stress. And a lot of the time, these young ladies do get accused of being the focus for the poltergeist. But there, there is other cases um, where, let's say, for our case, um, the focus person was a young man in his twenties. I think it doesn't matter. Who you are or what you are, if you're, if, if the honest PK theory is correct and it's to, all to do with the stress and the anxiety and hidden psychic phenomena within a person, then that was that, um, was, that was going to be my next next question about um, the poltergeist. That actually the emotions of troubled individuals. Built yeah. up during times of stress. Yeah, that's troubling. But they don't necessarily have to be the young girl. In our case, it was like um, like the twenty the twenty odd year old gentleman. But there have been some cases where there's been classic poltergeist activity. All the phenomena has got poltergeist written all over it. There's there's, there's no. No one, in the, no one in the house with stress or the anxiety, and there's no children in the house. You know, so there's cases that are, but this is what keeps the debate going. This is when people say, "Well, what about?" You know, there's a case here where there was there were, there were two sort of they were, they were in their sort of sixties and they were laid back and they, were, they weren't stressed about anything. There was no kid. And this is when people start saying, "Well, perhaps it's some sort of spirit or entity." Yeah. But the, the, the argument keeps going back and forth. The, the, and I think it's going to go on for a long, long time. Um, maybe in some cases it is down to a troubled individual stroke child, or in other cases it could be uh, a troubled individual stroke adult. In other times it could just be potentially something else, yeah. you know? Uh, but like I said before, the, the RSPK theory, um, it's, it's become accepted as the norm, and that's what a poltergeist is. But mm. scientifically speaking, if you look through the Journal of Parapsychology or you look through the Journal of Exp- Scientific Exploration, the, the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, there's nothing in there, in any of this peer-reviewed literature, that says this is what a poltergeist is because there's no evidence to actually prove it scientifically speaking. So it's a bit of a headache for your academics as well, I've got to be honest. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Okay. And I, I'm, I, I don't you, know what... I was just, I was just, extra, 
I was just extremely interested that they like women more than men that I'd read that and I was just wanting your perception to see what you thought on that. But thank you. No, anyway. no, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it, if you go back in the literature, it, a lot of the cases are disturbed young ladies for whatever reason, and they're always at that, that sort of age. I say always, I mean, you know, generally. Um, it sort of fits the pattern. But there's always exceptions to the rule, and there's other cases which completely make you sort of think, well, that can't be right. We've got this case and that case and this case, and there's no youngster female here. You know? So it, it, it throws a bit of a spanner in the works. So I, I guess that's why, after all these years, there's still no 100% scientific answer as to what these things are. I mean, you do get lots of people. Um, you could ask a million people, and a million people may tell you what a poltergeist is, and it's just their opinion. A lot of people say, well, a poltergeist is this, and that's what it is. And other people think it's a demon. Other people don't think it's a demon. But how do you prove any of it? You can only prove that these things are occurring, which I think, to be honest, there's enough cases out there, there's enough reliable witness, good cases, to be able to say, right, well, we shouldn't be looking at do they exist? We know that they do. Maybe we should be asking now, how do they exist? What causes it? Yeah. And there is, there is people sort of looking into that in the scientific community. And they were doing articles and peer-reviewed papers, and they're looking into like how it could, how it could be. It's fascinating. It really is. Right, we've got someone else as well. If 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 I can just introduce you, this is Dave. Dave wants to ask you a, a question now. Hey, Darren. Hello, Dave here. Um, Hello, quick question. I've, I read your book this week, and my question was regards to the when they got the priest in to bless the house. Uh-huh. What what fascinated me was something you said in the book. The the wife didn't want to tell the priest about the happenings in the house. She just wanted to get the priest in to bless the house, but without informing what was happening. Why do you think she wanted to do that? Mm. I don't know if I've got to be brutally honest. I might have to have a little bit of a... a bit of a look through the pages and and find that... this aspect I can actually quite remember. It might be enough to be mentioned in there somewhere. Um, but I can't think of any reason why why she might have did that. She might have did that. I guess. Um, well, I've got to be brutally honest. I don't know why she would have done that. And also, to be honest, I, I can't actually remember that. So okay. I'm, I'm going to have to after this phone call. I'm going to have a bit of a look through the book, and I'm going to. Could I ask one more question then, please? Yeah, I've I've not read your contagion thing, so I've only heard what you've told us tonight. However, also in the book, you stated that when the family left the house, so I'm I'm guessing for a small period you still kept in touch with the family, you said they were all happy and nothing followed them. So that would imply no contagion with them. So, um, do they still <laughs> offer people to go to the house? <laughs> like, if, if Nick wanted to go and investigate the house, could he? Sorry, repeat that question again. I didn't quite. I didn't yeah, quite yeah. Um, so you said that at the end, 
the the it family went. left the house and nothing followed them and they were happy. So for yeah, me, so, so that would say that, that there was no contagion and whatever it was was at the house. So could Nick go and investigate the house? Well, no, I don't think so because I think when the poltergeist finished, I think whatever happened, um, like, like the usual, like in most poltergeist cases, when the poltergeists die out and fizzle out and they're finished, they usually never come back. Okay, so thank you. this house, this house in South Shields that we investigated, and whoever may be living there now, I'm surmising that it's a perfectly quiet, happy house. Um, but a bit like East Drive, if it wasn't for all these investigators going in and like potentially perpetuating this potential myth. Notice I said potential. Um, just to cover myself there, just in case. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think um, I think the house down at South Shield is, is, is perfectly quiet. And the Polygate's case finished. And once these cases finish, very rarely, very rarely, in fact, I've never heard of a case other than Pontifract that a, that a Polygate's come back and resumed its activity. So, or, or it could be like lightning struck twice, couldn't it? I mean, it could be that, that, that there's been two people that have been in the same location that both happened to generate these poltergeist activities through themselves, whether intentional or not, or they, they could be a conduit for something that, that could do that. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That could, I mean, who knows, who knows. Yeah, anything's possible. Uh, now we've also just got uh, Mark as well. Mark wants to ask you a quick question. Just uh, passing you over to Mark now, mate. No problem. Hello, Mark. Hi, Darren. Uh, yeah, my question is, uh, you mentioned about uh, poltergeists being very similar to malevolent spirits and entities. What determines that the self-shields uh, poltergeist was not an entity or a malevolent spirit? Well, that's the thing. Although we've lent to the idea that it is, we don't really know. We don't really know what it was. But, you know, but the, the cases that we had afterwards, and subsequent, obviously subsequent cases, you know, when we were there investigating the South Shields, it, it did come across as if it was some sort of calculated, clever entity. So there was one day we, we could go in and we could be saying, right, we're confident, we're confident that it's this. And then a few days later, I could be scratching my head again, thinking, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I think it's this now. And that's what it does. It, it could be an entity. It could be an, an evil spirit of some sort. Or it could be RSPK. Or it could be something we've never yet even thought about. Um, that's the thing. We, we don't know what it was. It, it, it come across as being an entity. And it sort of goes towards, you know, it goes towards a theory of, you know, spiritual beings and things like that, if you look at the evidence. But again, it's, it's all sort of relevant and non-relevant. It's all, that's what I'm looking for, it's, it's all relative. You could get people coming in and interpreting our case as one thing and someone else could interpret it completely different as somebody else. Some people see it, some people have read the book and thought, well, oh, that's a demon you had there. I don't know. I don't know. I, I was, to me personally, it was just a plain old poltergeist. But whatever, whatever causes it, or whatever caused it, 
we're still doing that. It's really at the end of this Poltergeist Parallels and Contagion book, after reviewing all the evidence and going over everything and having new cases, we still get to the end and say, well, make your own mind up. All we can see is, is that these things did happen. It was real. Um, you go and figure out what, what you think it is. It, I mean, this has been going on for years and years and years and years, like tens and hundreds of years, if you know what I mean. People, and it's a demon, it's this, it's that, and that. But as, as things have went by over the years, it's kind of, back in the 1600s, it was, it was seen as like the devil. And there's minions coming up and earth throwing poltergeist and throwing clubs of glass around and, and people were getting burned for witchcraft and stuff like that. And then a few hundred years later, it was, it was all to do with mediums and spirits and angry spirits. And then years later, the RSP theory come in and it's like, it's not, it's not demons, it's not spirits, it's, it's something coming from within a human being. But this is where there's a bit of a, a, a bit of a gap. Because people are saying, well, no, 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 I'm, I'll lean, lean towards it could be spirit. No, no, well, I think it's RSP. Yeah, I think it's coming from within a human being. And I think in the book, Poltergeist Parallels and Contagion, I think we'll, I think we'll put a good case forward for, for either. So sometimes I think it could come from a human being because Poltergeist are spiteful. Poltergeist are evil. They're vindictive. They're, they're complete shit. Right? They've been grown way to make your life a misery. And I know loads of human beings who are just like that. So Poltergeist are very similar to people in the fact that they can be absolute bastards, there's that word again. Yeah. You know, and people are rich. They can be really mean to each other. They can be horrible. So then I think where the Poltergeist carries the same traits as a human being in the respect that, that, they, that they are descriptive, they're pointless, they're evil. A spacer. I know lots of people like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, true, mate. Um, and, and then I think, well, it could be, it, it could be something spiritual. Who knows? I've just got a, t- a couple more questions if you're okay for that. We've got uh, uh, Nick who's going to ask you something now and then Dave afterwards then. We'll come back to myself and, and we'll kind of um, find out where people can get hold of these books and uh, and how people can contact you and so forth. So I'll just pass you over to yeah, Nick again, yeah, mate. Yeah, no problem. Okay, Nick, hello. Hi, Dan, it's me again, uh, Nick. And f- first of Hi. all, I'd like to say I find it's refreshing that you um, aren't actually saying you know what it is, which is good. I've, I've been researching Poltergeist now for a few years and I've actually delved into your case quite a bit as well. Um, oh, okay. Thank but you. but um, what I would like to ask is, do you think if somebody's getting called to a Poltergeist case and did a bit of a... I don't know, idiots, should I say? They don't know what they're doing. Do you think they could make the case a lot worse than it already is? Uh, well, I suppose it depends on the scenario and the circumstances, but definitely yes. Yeah, I think they could. Um, it depends on the individual, I suppose. One individual could go in and just make a complete pig's ear of it. Um, I don't know how they can make it worse. Like physically, i.e., um, make the activity worse, but I'm, I'm, they might be able to go in and miss out on great opportunities to document and collate good data, or they might miss out the opportunity on helping the family through it. 
if they're doing doing the right thing, if, if, if they're doing supporting the right way, or if they're doing support at all, the family could be left on their own to deal with it. In, the, in the, technically, that could have detrimental effects, I suppose, because these these polygamists, when they when they strike, um, they could cause not just physical damage; they can cause mental damage. They could send you over the edge, thinking that you're absolutely. Absolutely nuts. So in that respect, if, if these investigators had that three sheet doesn't they're just out for fun, and they miss an opportunity to potentially document a good case and and be a social worker for these victims, because essentially that's what that's what you've got to be. You've got to be an investigator, a reporter, a social worker, you've got a doctor to a certain extent. And if if if, if the same stuff that Needs looking at, and you're not professionally sort of capable of doing it. Then at least you can like sort of point them in the right direction and say, "Well, I think you should get this looked at." Maybe consult this doctor and get that checked out. I can't do that for you because I'm not qualified. But I would suggest you go and make an appointment here and get this looked at. So if you've got someone in who hasn't got a clue about the logistics of polygamy investigation, yes, then they may just feel that couple or they may feel the victims and the victims might end up cracking up. So I guess in that respect, yes, they could. Right. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, what I was going to ask you, I won't bother now because you've just answered it. Um, I was oh, just right. going to say, so the best thing to do is just document everything and just support the family in need. Is that right? Basically, yeah. In a nutshell, yeah. Document everything that you can. Try and get as much evidence as you can. But don't put your sort of love and passion for accumulating evidence above the family's welfare. The family's the family's welfare. If you can ascertain that a case is genuine and the family are genuinely petrified and are frightened, your main concern is to protect and look after them. You've got to have ethics and nothing comes before the family. And if the family doesn't want this and the family doesn't want that, and the family doesn't want to go to the newspapers, you don't go to the newspapers. The family doesn't want to be named in the book. They weren't named in the book. Fifteen years on, nobody knows who this family is. Still, and I've turned down, in the, in the past 12 months alone, I've turned down 12 TV documentaries about this case because they want to know who the family is. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you who it is. Well, we can't do, the, we can't do it. And I'm saying, fine. Goodbye. There's, there's nothing more important than your, your ethics. And that's basically, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what I would suggest you do. I, Put I the family first. I think it's lucky then that it landed in the right hands because we, we all know people inside, you know, the, the paranormal world that would kind of abuse situations for try and make Truly something out of it. Yeah, they yeah, would have so. been able to take that straight away. They would have had all their friends, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I've thought that a number of times myself. And I have actually been told by a few individuals, some of the top psychical researchers who are aware of this case, and they've said it, it couldn't have fell into better hands um, at that particular time. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. No, no worries, mate. Um, got last two questions, and then, like I say, we just want to, to kind of talk about your, your book and the future for you. So uh, we've got um, Dave, and I was going to ask you another quick question, mate. Sorry, you go, mate. Right, no problem. <laughs> um, okay, no. Um, for the parents, there was 
it was th- things were malevolent. They got all the messages and they were nasty and etc. But with the child, yeah. you had the floating above the bed at night. Um, you had um, the moving of the rocking horse, but mm-hmm. messages. The parents got rip and all the rest of the stuff that they got. But the child, yeah. I can only remember one. You said that there was a writing on the board that said C U C U C U. Did they ever get yes. any meaning out of that? And did they ever get any more messages for the child? For the child? Yeah. Because that was on the blue um, pen on the child's board, you said. Yes, I, yes, I remember the see you, see you, see you in letters. Um, we interpreted that as, like, I must know, see you. Okay. You know, like, 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 it's, like, it's like a Newcastle thing. Or, or, it's like, I thought, is it Newcastle? I don't know if they use it throughout the country. Right, right, because I I, I was of the feeling that maybe it wasn't malevolent to the child. No, it it, it didn't seem to be. It it did tie with him and it moved him around and he he did say things, but he wasn't playing like. Yeah, that's why I think Mike had come to the conclusion that it was like some sort of imaginary playlist. Yeah. And it eventually would come to the conclusion that whatever it was, it was masquerading as a playmate. It was like luring it. And this is where we come back to thinking, well, it had malevolence and it had cunning and it had some sort of sentience. This is why we think that for, for this particular case. But it didn't seem to face the little end at all. Uh, even though on one occasion it wrapped him up, it cocooned him in a, in a, in a quilt and it's, it hit him in the cupboard. Um, but that was done necessarily to, to scare the living heebie-jeebies out of the parents, and, and it worked. Um, when he was found in the cupboard space, where she had previously looked for him and he wasn't there, um, he, was, he, was, he was like sort of asleep. His eyes were awake, but he was like sort of in a trance weird like state. Um, it, it, it was fascinating, but it didn't harm him as such. It, but it didn't harm him at all, to be, you know? Did you ever? Uh, did you ever spend any time in 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 the the house without the family there? Um, no, I don't think we did. No, we didn't. We did spend time in the house when there was only one of them there, and then we spent time in the house when the other one was there. You know, and was, um, there, was, but there was, was, was there always activity if there was just one person in the house? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yes, but sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes we, we identified Mark as being the focus, um, but there was times when he wasn't actually in the house when and things were occurring. And there was certain things. When we were trying to eliminate him as, as being a potential prankster and, and causing it, then it had me scratching my head again because I thought, well, well this has happened, that's occurred. And he's not even yet, so it, it cannot be him doing this. And then we, we saw stuff with Weather and Eyes, um, you know, incredible stuff, which proved it, it couldn't it couldn't have been him. It couldn't have been him, Satan, because he wasn't there to do it, or he was in another room when something occurred, you know. Uh, but uh, he, well, you can talk about this forever and a day. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's still fascinating. You know, I was just going to say the same thing. It's absolutely fascinating. Last question now is going to be from Faye. And the only reason Faye wants to ask the last question is because she wants to ask more questions than anybody else. So I'll pass you over now, mate. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Darren. 
No, um, my question is, I know you said you stayed with the family to the end. Yeah. Yeah. And the poltergeist sort of dissipated. Yeah. My my question would be to that, once once that property is vacated by that family and yeah. say another family move in or someone else would can that same poltergeist come back again to those people in that house? I would say no. I would say no because if the poltergeist is sort of relevant to that family and then that family's grown of it and the focus has dealt with his angst or his pain or whatever and he's come to terms with whatever grief he had, the poltergeist then leaves, then normally if it is going to resurface, it'll resurface with him in his new abode, which normally doesn't happen. A new family could move in and the only reason the new family's going to get a poltergeist in the same house is like what that guy said before, unless someone in the new household happens to be suffering in some way and it's at the right age and it's at the right criteria for a poltergeist and then lightning strikes the same house twice. Okay. But I don't think it'll be the same poltergeist coming back. Okay, all right, thank you for that. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'll be the same family's poltergeist. Sorry? And say it could be the same, it not be the, the same family's poltergeist. Yeah. Another poltergeist could come up. But this is where it gets interesting again because if, if you need the, con, uh, the parallel, poltergeist parallels and contagion, we, we put forth a theory which no one's thought of before. And we do kind of suggest that all poltergeists that ever have that have ever been, and that ever will be, could potentially be one poltergeist. But if you want to find out more, you'll, you'll have to you'll have to buy me book. <laughs> now, talk, talking talking about your books, then, because we're coming to, towards the end of of, uh, of the show, and obviously we, we want to thank you for spending so much time talking to us. It's been really, really fascinating, and we've all learned so much again tonight. Um, can you let people know so, where can they buy your where can they get your books from? Right. Well, let's start with well Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, Amazon.co.uk and type in Darren W. Ritson or you can type in South Shields Poltergeist. It'll bring it up. Poltergeist Parallels and Contagion, exactly the same. You can get it on Amazon or you can get it on the Waterstones website. Um, take the ISBN book number and go into a shop and you can order it. Um, or you can get it direct from the publishers. Um, the South Seals Polygeist is published by the History Press, um, and that's based in Gloucestershire. You, you, they, they sell the books as well, so you can buy it direct from them. Um, Waterstone's website, you can get it on there. And Polygeist Parallels and Contagion is published by White Crow Books, and you can get that from the publisher himself as well. Um, you can check his website or you can get it on Amazon as per usual. If you don't want to go to Amazon and you want to go to a more, because I think Amazon are putting like extra prices on, they're putting things up for like delivery. I think you, you can go and get it from, from Waterstones or direct from the publisher. That would be the best place to get it. The best route. Yeah. yeah. All right, Darren, like I say, thank you so much for giving us your time again tonight. And uh, we'd love to have no you uh, back on again in the future. Um, 
and obviously if, if any new cases come up please do give us a shout so we can learn all, all about that so uh, just like I say thanks a lot everybody again for listening and um, thanks a lot Darren we will see you next week for the Ghost Hunting Society thank you very much